Pastor Eric and I were riding to the pastor's conference during this last week down at Moody. And as we traveled, we were listening to the radio, and there a news broadcast was on there, and it had to do with the recession and, and people losing jobs. And we were listening to, there was one segment of it that we were driving along listening, and then we looked at each other right after. We said, did we hear just what we thought we heard? And they were, there was a divorce lawyer on, and they were interviewing him. And he was saying that he is so deeply saddened by the, uh, the effects of the recession that people who should be getting divorces can't afford to get them. And I think, this is news? I mean, this, this is the thing. That, here's a guy who makes his whole living out of helping break up families. And, and he feels sorry for the people who should be getting divorces. And I wanted to say, praise God, if the recession is causing families to stay together, praise God. That's where we should be going. That's what should be happening. People should not have the freedom, the great ease and freedom to walk away from a commitment. And, and I, I was thinking about that, and, and just in, in context of thinking about this message today and the, and the portion of Scripture that we're in in Ephesians, and it just reminded me of, of the power of the Word of God and the healing power and the, the strengthening power of the Word of God. When you see life clearly from the eyes of God, through the eyes of God, you understand the things that are right, and you understand the way we ought to go. Now, we are in the book of Ephesians, if you're joining us for the first time today. Just kind of a, a quick overview, we're in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, we've come from the beginning of it, and we've learned in the very first opening part of this letter to this church in Ephesus that God has chosen some to be his. He has made a choice, a conscious choice, a choice to draw some to himself. And as he made that choice, he did that with a purpose in mind. It says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God is determined to accomplish something in every one of his children. He is determined to make you holy and blameless in his sight. That's where he's going to end up, where you are going to end up. That's what he's going to accomplish in you. It's his plan. And all the rest of Ephesians that follows after this really comes out as revealing how God is going about doing this. How God is going to make you holy and blameless in his sight. And we saw that the first three chapters, actually three and a half chapters, Paul is laying out a doctrinal foundation. He's, he's giving us the foundation upon which everything else has to stand. All the action that comes, all the thoughts that come later have to be built on this foundation. And if they're not, then we're going to be running after something and trying to do something on our own strength, and our own strength, our own energy, and we're going to try to accomplish something that God is accomplishing. And that's why it's very important that you don't skip to the, uh, the temptation for me is I, I like to be practical. I like to see how does it work. And so I like to say, okay, just don't, don't make me spend time going through the foundational stuff. I want to see how do I put this into practice. But we are forced to walk through these first chapters because it is necessary for us to see the foundation upon which everything else is built. Otherwise, it'll just be your works. And your works aren't sufficient. Something has to be motivated in you and working. The Spirit of God has to be working in you in order for these things to happen. So chapter 1, Paul talks about how God lavished his love on you. He just he poured out his love on you. 
Now, chapter 2, he backtracks a little bit. It's kind of like a flashback in a movie. He goes back and he says, Now, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. That's why chapter 1 had to happen. Because God poured out all of his love upon you. He chose you. He's determined to make you holy and blameless in his sight. And all of that comes about not as a result of your effort or my effort. It's a result of God's effort because you and I were dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. That's how chapter 2 opens up. And so seeing that opening in chapter 2 kind of gives us focus because there is always the temptation to think that when we read chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We tend to think, oh, there must have been something he liked about me. I wasn't born yet, but he knew something. And Paul goes right back in chapter 2. He says, no, 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 no. It had nothing to do with you. You were dead. You were unable to respond to God. There was nothing in you that could draw God to you. That's important for us to remember, especially as we see the commands coming up in the last part of the book. The power of maturity. Paul ends chapter 2 talking about how he wants us to be mature, growing up into Christ. He wants us to grow up. God intends to make you mature. He intends to make you grow up. Uh, For some of us, that's a big battle. We like it better when we were kids. And everyone did everything for us. And we had our way because we were just little kids. But now, spiritually, God's saying, grow up. I want you to grow up. I want you to be mature. We're going to see what some of that means as we get into this chapter today. What does maturity look like? In chapter 3... Paul ends this chapter with that wonderful prayer of praise to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The mature, the power of mature Christianity is revealed in a church that is filled with believers who are seeking to walk in the steps of Jesus to walk in a way that pleases him, who are growing up into him, becoming holy and blameless in his sight. It's a lifelong effort. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, he that began a a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to accomplish it. He will accomplish it. He will accomplish it. But it's not going to be easy. It won't be easy for you and I. This growing up stuff, this maturity stuff is not fun in some ways. God allows us to go through difficulties and struggles in order to help us grow. But a church that is filled with maturing believers is a church that reveals the power of God. And then in chapter 4, we found that the celebration of God when Jesus rose from the dead, and it says he gave gifts to the church, and the gifts were in the form of people to accomplish the work of God. And one of the things he said is that we are to have, uh, that you're given pastors, for instance, to train God's people for doing the works of the ministry. Not that pastors are to do the work of the ministry, but that they are to train the church to do the work of the ministry. In a sports metaphor, pastors are coaches. They're the ones who say, here's here's how it looks, guys. Here's what you need to know to accomplish this. And so we have classes being given uh, in various topics, in various ways, uh, 
training sessions. And that's why when, when we offer a class, you say, oh, Ephesians said, I'm supposed to be maturing. I'm supposed to be growing up. And this is what the church leadership thinks we need to grow up. I better be a part of this. I need to be a part of this. And so this is why these things are out there. Not so that you can say, oh, another class. It's so, oh, another opportunity to understand what I need to understand to do the work of the ministry. The coaches have gathered together and decided that these things are essential. So now, Paul turns his attention in this fifth chapter. And he turns his attention to how do we apply these things? How do we make these things work? What does it look like to be maturing in Christ day to day? And he actually chooses uh, three areas that three broad areas in which this is all worked out. And it is in relationships in the church, and we looked at that last week. We focused on those relationships in the church, and that's the first part of chapter 5. And then we see that Paul turns to the family. And he says, within the family, this is part of how God is going to mature you, how he's going to bring you up into the measure of fullness of Christ. And then lastly is your work life. We're going to look at that today. On the job, your work relationships, how do you approach your job in these days? It has everything to do with what God is doing in you. It's not just the means by which you get income. It's the means by which God is helping to mature you. So turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. We started the scripture reading today, uh, which I thank the Gallo family for. Thank you for doing that. That was that was wonderful to see it applied uh, in these different by different family members. We started the scripture reading though with the end of uh, with verse 18 actually, where Paul is wrapping up his instructions. We looked at this last week. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Verse 20 then says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see all these phrases. Verse 18 through 21 is really one long sentence. And so it's not wise or safe to chop off the end of this sentence. And also it's not wise to launch into the next section, which begins with verse 22, and chop off verse 21. Very often we do this when we talk about marriage. We start with verse 21 of Ephesians 5 instead of starting with verse 20. Because Paul says now in the church, the way that you are going to be maturing is by learning to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how he finishes that section talking about relationships within the church. Now, he turns his attention to the family. And so we see these three applications. Uh, The application of transformed living is found in this word submit. Now, we don't like this word a lot. This is a very, very unpopular word. And Paul leads this discussion of submitting to one another into these three applications of the church, the family, and your work setting. How can you submit to others? How is it that we are able to do such a thing? It really runs counter to our nature. It runs counter to who we are in our hearts. In our hearts, we say, no, I'm not going to do that. We clench our fists and we get strong, stiff necks, right? We say, no, I'm not going to do that. Part of the transformation process is that he's 
given us a vision of Jesus submitting to the Father, doing the will of the Father, even coming to die on the cross. And then he turns to you and says, says, do the same thing. Do the same thing. You and I can submit to one another because we are fully aware of the truth that Paul talked about in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. No good thing in us. Nothing in us that says I'm superior to that person next to us. You grew up in different families. You've had different opportunities than the people around you. But you were dead in sin, the same as they were. Everyone starts at the same place, dead in sin. Everyone begins there. So we can submit to one another because we are fully aware that we were dead, drowning in sin, and we desperately, desperately need needed a Savior. We needed someone to reach out and rescue us. How can you submit to someone else? Because there's no good thing in us that should bring us before God and satisfy him. It's because of God's wonderful, glorious, and inexplicable grace that you were chosen. You deserve hell, but God is giving you heaven. Wow. If you don't walk around saying to yourself, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Why would he choose me? And the more you ask yourself that question, the more you realize there's no reason. There is no reason. He did it because he did, because he's sovereign, because he rules over all the universe and everything that there is. Therefore, when he talks about, when Paul talks about submitting to one another, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He did it for you. He paid the price. He's already done it. He set you the example. And he has done it in reality as well. Among believers, the working of the Holy Spirit is seen in a willingness to submit to others. This means that you willingly serve others and do not seek to be served. The apostles really wrestled with this one. You know, as you think back and you read the Gospels and you read the, the even the night of the Last Supper, the disciples, the apostles are at the Last Supper. And they know this is big. This is Passover, and Jesus has been telling them some unsettling things that, that uh, they're not going to see him again, and he's going to his father. And he's been telling them these things, and, and these things were weighing heavily upon them. But what are they talking about at the meal? They're talking about who's the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest? It's like a bunch of Muhammad Ali sitting there. I'm the greatest. You know, and, and Jesus is with them, about to go to the cross. And what are they talking about? Who's going to be the greatest? They missed the message. It went right over their heads. And that's when Jesus got up, and he, it says he took off his outer garment, and he put a, a, like an apron on, and he got down and he washed their feet. He said, guys, you've got to get this message. You, you've got to see, you have to understand what I'm trying to get across. You're missing it. It's, it's, I'm, just going to, I'm going to do something in a few hours that will change all of history for all of eternity. And there's a reason to it. There's a reason for it. And you are missing it. And I want you to see what it looks like. So it means that you can willingly serve others and not seek to be served because you were chosen. 
not because of any good thing in you. In the book of Romans, in the letter to the Roman church, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So no, I, I can do it more. I can honor you more than you can honor me. No, no, I can do it. We don't have a lot of those kind of contests, do we? Paul laid it out for us. Now, in doing, in learning the to live a transformed life, in the life of submission, um, Paul begins to explain then in verse 22 how the family is the heart of God's disciple-making plan. A lot of times we think and we say the church is out to make disciples, and that's true. But we're missing the heart of God's plan. The heart of God's disciple-making plan is in your home. That's where the disciple-making process begins. So everything that Paul says now after this uh, begins with the foundation in the family and that we are to make disciples. Some of the news recently has not been encouraging. It was brought up at the pastor's conference. I've seen this in other places. Uh, studies have done, and this was, was brought to my attention recently. I told you a, a few weeks ago about a, a new believer in Christ who came to me and he said, I, I just heard that the statistics among Christians in terms of morality, in terms of divorce, in terms of, of uh, ethical violations, it looks the same as in the outside world. And he said to me, how can that be? How can that be? And, you know, I, I want to be upbeat. I want to encourage him. And, and I said, you know, it's a sad state of affairs. When we can measure this, we can go out and do surveys, and we can discover that those who profess to be Christians in this country are not living as the Word of God says. There's almost no difference morally between the two. And how can that be? Well, the answer is, the bottom line answer is, the church is not producing the disciples that it's supposed to be producing. We're producing people who come, and they'll even come out on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping in. Good thing. And they listen on a Sunday morning, and then they leave this place, and they go and do what they very well please. They live as if there not, has not been any change. They live as if there has not been any transforming power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And how can that be? How is that? That those professing to be Christians live the same outside as the rest of the unsaved world. We have to look inside and we have to say what's wrong. And I think that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the place where we begin to get the understanding that we need to have to clearly understand why these sad statistics are true. Now, uh, we've talked about walking, and, and I've got this treasure chest, and this treasure chest represents all that there is in the book of Ephesians, all these wonderful things that we've been finding in here and, and seeing that God has given to us. And week by week, we've been looking at different aspects of it. And one of the things I did a few weeks ago is I, I wore this old shirt. And wearing this old raggy shirt, it's, it's like the worst shirt I could find in our house. It's got paint on it, and it's torn, and pockets are torn, and everything is raggy about it. And when I wore this during most of the message that week, people were giggling when I came out. They kind of laughing. What is he wearing? Did he forget, you know, uh, that he didn't know what that was? And, of course, the picture was that Paul told us we're supposed to put off the old life. Put off the life that you used to live. Make a conscious choice. Don't, don't uh, psychoanalyze yourself through this. And don't say, well, I've got to wait till I feel this. And that person does the right thing toward me and I'm going to do that. Paul says, put it off. Put off your old life. Just make a choice and say, I'm done with it. It's over. I'm not going to live that life any longer. 
Another thing we found is one of the themes that seems to run throughout the whole book of Ephesians is this idea of walking. How we walk. And this walking cane is, is a picture from my mind of, of the Christian walk. We are walking through this life and we're walking from here to heaven. And whenever I see a cane like this, it reminds me that I'm supposed to be walking with Jesus. I'm supposed to be following him. I'm supposed to be living as he would have me live. Of course, some of you enjoyed it very much last week when this, by the way, the time is wrong on here on purpose. So you're not sitting here saying, hey, he's got to hurry up. Um, you, uh, some of you laughed last week that clock went off at the wrong time, but we had that loud alarm because Paul says in chapter, uh, chapter 5, Awake, O sleeper! Awake! And I think that's the message for the church today. Awake, church! Wake up! Pay attention. Pay attention to the word that God has. Well, now Paul turns his attention to the family. And I was trying to think, what could I put in this treasure chest that would represent this first section of wives and husbands? And I realized, well, there's nothing I'm willing to put in there because I'm wearing it. This is the constant reminder of the treasure that God has given us in Christ in marriage. It's the reminder to me. I'm not willing to put it over there. I want to take it with me wherever I go. It's often said, uh, we have an old saying here, that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And uh, I think that uh, for younger guys, that, that there's a great deal of truth in that. You know, you just, uh, you just think, oh boy, you know, if you can cook some more like that, uh, we could work on an arrangement here. Uh, because this is, this is good stuff. But I think that Paul is saying something else in this section to wives and husbands. I approach this section with a lot of fear. Fear because I'm not qualified to teach about how the family is supposed to work. I'm, I'm not going to reveal some terrible sin here. I'm just saying I come to the conclusion all the time I don't understand this. We're going to be married 37 years in, in a few weeks, and I don't understand it. Still, I really am honestly saying that. And, and I, I, I'm amazed at what God is doing. And, and I come back to Ephesians chapter 2 and I realize why. I always feel this way. And I think honest people among us will feel the same way about your own marriage because you're going along fine and you're doing well for a few days or even weeks or months and all of a sudden, bang! And where'd that come from? Did that come out of my mouth? Did I have that attitude? Did I, did I throw that? What, where is that from? I thought I was doing so well. I thought I had this thing handled. Uh, so I come to you now and I'm telling you that I'm going to teach you something that I'm still working on really hard. Uh, I've got some time yet, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, to, to keep working on this. If you're newly married, don't be discouraged. You will never arrive. <laughs> keep at it. Keep at it. If you've been married for a long time, keep at it. Now, you do learn some things. And it does get better and better and deeper. And there are times when your, your thoughts are there together because you've been thinking together for so long, you understand. And that's kind of where you get in trouble when you start saying, I know what you're going to say next. How do you know what I'm going to say next? Well, okay. So, direction to wives and husbands. Another thing I want us to understand there's this little tiny paragraph to wives and this huge section to husbands. Does Paul understand something about the male mind? You know, he's writing this saying, okay, 
Wives, I've got some instruction for you. It's going to be hard for you to take. Men, I've got some instruction to you, and I'm going to have to give you lots of pictures because you don't understand this. And, and so that's what Paul is doing here. He lays this out. And I, I've had husbands come to me and, and point to this verse 22 and say, See, wives submit to your own husbands. See, wives submit to your own husbands. And that's the only thing they ever see. From that point on, they lose the rest of Ephesians. And I'm saying, if that's all you see, husbands, you don't understand. First of all, it's not written to you. It's written to your wife. Uh, and it's not the kind of thing that you would be wise to demand, but that God can demand of us. And so God is speaking. And I think that the way to a man's heart is not through his stomach, but it's through respect. It's what every husband wants. Food is good, but respect is better. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. And please underline this three-letter word, own husbands. Uh, there are some who believe that wives should submit to every husband out there somewhere. Uh, that's not true. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Uh, it's not to every man. And it is, so it is here. Wives, submit to your own husband. Submission means to choose to place yourself under the leadership of another. You choose to place yourself under the leadership of another. That's what the concept of submission is. You make that voluntary choice. Now, we live with this all the time. We go to school and we have chosen, and sometimes our parents remind us of that, that you have chosen to be under the authority of your teachers. We submit under authority. We go to work. And we understand that there are those in authority over us, and that's how business gets done, that's how work is accomplished, and we willingly do that because that's the plan. We understand how it works. And it works the same way in the household. For the sake of order within the house, God has a plan. And he begins here with this plan. Wives, choose to place yourself under the leadership of your husband. Now, there are two reasons given for the wife's submission to her husband in verses 23 and 24. The first reason is, for the husband is the head of the wife, and that's the first reason. God appointed the husband as the head of the wife. The same way as he chose some for salvation, he made another sovereign choice. He said, this is the way it's going to be. He created Adam first as a symbol and as the picture of a plan, and he did it on purpose. At that point, God could have done anything he wanted to. He could have started with a woman. But he made another choice. And we have to understand that and respect that. So God appointed the, head, the man as the head of the wife. Not based on value or worth, but on God's sovereign choice. It's his design. The second thing is that he said that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. So the two reasons are God has a plan, and Jesus also is over the church, and the household, the family, is to be a picture of God's plan, with Jesus submitting and following uh, to, under the Father and also leading the church. Christ is the head of the church. And so that's, that's how he declares that. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Follow the leadership of your husband is the direction. That's what the Word of God says. It's not popular in this day. It's not 
the air of our times. But it is the word of God. It's the wise way. It's the safe way. It is the way that brings a production out of the family, that that produces a growing family. Christian marriage is a model of the relationship between Christ and the church. I think in a lot of ways, and Paul sums this up later on with this word respect, for the wife, for wives, this is shown in the words used to describe your husband to other people. How do you talk about your husband with the girls? That's a big question. It's something that's very, very significant here. If you are respecting your husband, uh, you speak about him in a certain way. I've heard some strange names applied to husbands. Fool, idiot, meathead. And it grieves me to hear that. And I believe it grieves God. Because I believe it's grieving something in the heart of a wife that is defying the command of God here. So wives, determine in your heart never, ever to despise your husband in public or in private. Always give him honor. You'll be amazed at the effect that that has on your life. Now, you skip down to verse 33, and Paul is summing up the section to husbands and wives, and he says, However, let each one of you love his wife, and that's the summary for the direction to the husband, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The way to a man's heart is not through his stomach, but through honoring his God-given place in your family. So much of the present damage to the family has taken place in this area. There is a whole movement of women who have said we are not only equal to men, but we are independent of men. We don't need men to have children. We don't need them. And they are defying the design and the plan of God. Some are declaring their independence by having children with no intention of marrying the father of their child because they are ultimately disrespectful of that man. They are using the man for their own means. And it, it defies God. So, the direction to the wife. Respect your husband. Direction to the husband, this long section. Verses 25 through 33. If I were to sum up all of these words, all that Paul writes in these words, I would say, love your wife to death. Your death. The question is, how much will you give up for your wife? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. One sentence there. Husbands, love your wives in such a way that you may present her in a glorious way to God. How much will you give up for your wife? How much will you surrender in order to love your wife? Remember, chapter 2, verse 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead. It's not that you should demand, can demand respect. You are commanded to love your wife. Christ set the example again. Same as to the woman and her submission to the husband, Christ is the example. He sacrificially gave himself up for the church. 
And so in verse 26, then Paul says, um, love him, love your wife as Christ loved the church, the church in the same exact way, sacrificially. You set her apart so that you might present her in such a way. You set her apart to give her honor. Uh, the purpose of God's choosing you was to make you holy. Now, this washing of water by the word kind of is confusing to some people here, and they think, well, it's just talking about baptism here, and I don't think it is at all. It's talking about the effect of the word of God on the soul. It's like washing your soul. You come in contact with the word of God, it changes the way you think, and your soul is washed by this. So it's not talking here about having cleansed her by baptism with the word. That's not the point. It's the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Remember back in chapter 1, God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Husbands, it's your job to care for your wife in such a way that you present her to Christ someday, holy and without blemish, that you present her, you build her up and encourage her. When you choose a wife, you are to place her in a special place of honor that no other woman has in your life. You set her apart. You set her apart from all other women. That's why you wear a wedding ring in public. You've made a declaration. You've made a declaration that you are doing that. You give her a special place of honor. So to husbands, the question is, do you honor your wife? Do you set her apart from all other women? That's what Paul makes a point of saying that, um, therefore, quoting from Genesis Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Out of all the other choices you have out there in the world, you made a choice. You chose your wife. You chose this one to be your wife and you set her apart from everyone else. You'd never, ever confuse the two again. Do you set your wives apart, men? Do you love them so that you can present her spotless? You can't perfect your wife. That's the work of God. And I know you already know that. You've already said to yourself, I can't make you perfect. Uh, but I think the picture here of the church and Christ is, is important. When someone else looks at your wife, another man looks at your wife, because you have set her apart in your dealings with her, and the world knows that you've set her apart, you've stood publicly and made your declaration, when some other man looks at your wife, He's looking through you. The same as when someone looks at a believer, you're in the hand of Jesus, and they, God looks at you at, through Jesus. Same picture here. Husband, set your wife apart in such a way that everyone knows that she is your wife. And you have honored this woman in a special way. And that they see her through your eyes. If you are unloving to your wife... Others will see her as unloved, and it will put her in a place of temptation to seek that love in another place. And someone might try to take advantage of that. So the direction to husbands is love your wives. Now this last part of this section here, verse 28, uh, to the end, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. If I were to write a book about this, and God already did, so it saves me the trouble, but I would title it differently. 
I would call it marriage for dummies. Wake up, men. You want to know how this works? Here's how you do it. You love your wife the same way you love yourself. How do you take care of yourself is the question. You wash, see the doctor when you need to, you dress yourself, you smell good, you look nice. How do you take care of yourself? That's the same way you ought to take care of your wife. You don't um, neglect yourself and you ought not to neglect your wife. When you love your wife, you're loving yourself because God has made the two one. It's a win-win situation. You love your wife and you love yourself. Verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, dummy. That's not in your Bible, but... Uh, no man ever hated his own flesh, dummy, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You take care of yourself, you need to take care of your wife. If you don't love your wife, you're not loving yourself. That's the two become one part. When someone hurts themselves, we say that that's a sign of mental instability. And if you are not caring for your wife and not nurturing your wife and not building her up, it's a sign of some kind of faulty mental processes going on. You're not understanding. It's defective thinking. Now, when you sacrifice for your wife, and this comes down to verse 33, however, let each of you love his wife as himself. That sums it all up. When you sacrifice for your wife, she delights to submit to your leadership. It all comes back. It all works again. It works around this way. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands, and it all fits together. Now, there's no escape clause here. It doesn't say for either the husband or the wife, for one of you to say, well, if he doesn't love me the way I think he should, then, then I don't have to submit. Or if, if she does not submit, then I don't have to sacrificially love her. That's not here. That's not given to you. You are to love your wife. When you sacrifice for your wife, she delights to submit to you, and you delight to lead her. I have watched long enough. I've seen marriages for a long time as a pastor, and I have observed something that's very distressing. I've seen husbands that hold their wives back spiritually. They know their wife desires to go forward, to pursue the things of the Lord, to grow in him, and they, they say, no, I'm going to throw up this roadblock here. I'm going to be cranky today. I'm not going to do that. And I've seen wives, uh, husbands do the same thing to their wives, and wives do the same thing to their husbands. And I want to warn you here. Someday you're going to stand before the Lord. And one of the areas of examination will be your marriage. How did you encourage your husband? How did you encourage your wife to pursue Jesus? Or were you just always throwing up roadblocks for your emotional whatever, some game you're playing? That's the question. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And Well, we're almost out of time here. We're going to have to make this another thing we'll do next week here. Talking about children... Um, let me just finish this part on children, uh, and then, then we'll wrap this up. In the beginning of chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, this is the next place of order. Husbands, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Children, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Do what's good for you. And Paul reminds us here that the fifth commandment is the first commandment that has a promise connected to it. Honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And I don't think that just means as long as you're a little kid, honor your father and your mother. I think that's a lifelong thing that you do. In fact, Jesus confronted the Pharisees at one point. He said, look at you guys. You're, you're pretending you're so spiritual and you're making a vow and you're saying to your mom and dad, 
who should be getting something from you, who you should be supporting in some way, you're saying, well, I've dedicated this to the Lord, so you're not going to get any of that. And Jesus called them on that. He said, you're not honoring your father and your mother. So I think this is a lifelong thing. Little children, honor your father and mother. Big adults, honor your father and mother as long as they're here on the earth. And you know what I see happening here? Someday, someday, your children who have grown up watching you and how you honor or dishonor your parents, someday they are going to do what you have done. Someday, instead of grandma and grandpa being the old folks that you might have pushed away, too inconvenient, whatever, someday you will be them. And your children will have to decide whether to honor you or not. That it may be well with you. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you for all of your life, even when you're big, even when you're old. Because what you do in honoring your parents as children and adults will be done to you at some point in life. It's very sobering to think about that. Honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Ah, I'll come back to this next week. We'll, we'll pick it up because we have others that are waiting to come in here. As you look at the Word of God, I want you to look at it in application to today. Not in some spiritual realm out there somewhere, but how does this apply to my life today? That's what Paul is being extremely practical here. He's saying this is how it means you live when you walk day by day by day. You walk through this life. And as you walk as a Christian, you walk with Jesus, you walk with God, and you walk with one another, God is making you holy and blameless in his sight. Let's stand as we sing a closing song.